James writes this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Ever since man's first sin, he has been running from God. And ever since God gave his first command, he has been pursuing mankind. The Bible begins with the story of Adam and Eve sinning and fleeing. In fact, the Bible begins in many ways with this question that God asks, where are you? And the Bible ends with the answer to that question, ultimately in glory, we're right here, established in the second, the final garden forever. The Bible begins with mankind going into sin, fleeing from the garden because fleeing from God. And the Bible ends with God making a new garden and establishing his throne there and establishing mankind, a race, the church, to worship him for all time. And in the middle of those two poles, in the middle, from one garden to the other, from fleeing to being found, in the middle is the story of how God pursues his people, finds them, draws them to himself, and brings them to glory. The Old Testament is the people running away from God's voice and running right into the cross. The New Testament is the story of God's people in many ways running away from the cross because they're still running from God and God grabbing them and bringing them back to the cross. The cross then becomes the lever upon which all of the Bible moves. It's the centerpiece of the story. If people are running from God and God is chasing them, how does God ultimately catch them and bring them to himself? And that's the story of the cross. Luke 15 becomes a chapter filled with stories that are about the Bible. That God is the father who is in pursuit of his wayward child, his child who is leading a debauched and sinful life. And yet ultimately God becomes rejected by the, the religious child that stays home but won't repent. The Bible becomes the story of God is the woman who is searching for the coin. Or God is the shepherd who has lost his, his sheep and will go and pursue. He'll leave the 99 to go after the one. And when he finds it, he celebrates it. And, the, you know, so the stories of Luke 15 is in many ways the stories of God rejoicing and God celebrating that people who run from him have been found, that you can't outrun it. When God's in pursuit, you can't outrun him. He is, in that sense, the hound of heaven. And so this morning, the question for you, as we look at this passage or we look at the theme of the Bible about God recruiting for himself his own army, drawing to himself his own family, God is building this family up and recruiting this army. And you know this, if you're, if you're a believer, you've been drafted by God into his, his army to go into the world and join him in his seek and save mission. That God saves people not as an end in and of themselves, but to send them to seek and to save others and bring them back to the Savior. God uses means as he chases us, namely others who have been lost and found. So the question this morning for you is, have you been found? Have you been drafted into this Lord's army? Have you been captured by God and brought into a relationship to him? And you might say, found? Ha! Huh, I've never been lost. Well, this is a passage for you then. 
as we go through this this morning, let me get an outline to hang your thoughts on. Three components of serving in the Lord's army. Three descriptions or three steps, three facets of serving in the Lord's army. First, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to draw near to God. The first component of serving the Lord's army is to understand your mission. If you choose to accept it, to draw near to God. And this is where James begins in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is an, an imperative. that You are called to draw near to him. If you do draw near to him, he in turn will draw near to you. And this is really a stunning picture. This phrase, draw near to God, it describes your relationship with God in intimate language. The concept of drawing near to God, it's a phrase that is used in the Old Testament uh, occasionally to a son who draws near to his father on his deathbed to hear his father's last and dying words. That's a tender image. But it's also a phrase that is used of a husband and a wife. An intimate phrase that the wife and husband draw near one another. It's a tender phrase. And it is the phrase that James uses here and that is often used in the Old Testament to describe a believer's relationship with God. And so you should marvel at the fact that the Bible, when it describes our relationship with God, describes it tenderly, describes it lovingly, compassionately, softly. It's unusual. In fact, I'll say this, there's no other religion that has this concept in it that you draw near to God and he draws near to you. Most religions in the world have a mysticism to them, a shroud of uncertainty. Think of even the pagan cultic religions in the ancient world. There was this ambiguity about how God should be worshipped. It's not raining, so we should give God more sacrifices. It's not raining, so we're giving him too many sacrifices. We don't know. There's no sense in which we're close enough to God to hear from him and to understand what he wants us to do. So we're guessing. Paul calls this in Acts 17, groping in the darkness, trying to find the way back to God. Even in the major religions of the world today, they major so much on the externals that they lose the hearts. They don't have this concept that God is worshipped in spirit and in truth. They don't teach that you can pray to the omnipotent creator and that he bends his ear down to you and that he hears you and he's, he's compassionate towards you and he's drawing you near himself. They, they don't have that. They have a distant God who's unknown and unknowable. A dark God who can only be approached through your own self-sacrifice. And hey, you've been to maybe even some Catholic churches or cathedrals where people don't sit near the front because they're not worthy enough to approach God or they would never dream to pray to God because, because who do they think God is that God would listen to them? And they hear Protestants, Christians praying to God by name and it seems almost blasphemous, really. I mean, don't you have to go to Mary or to an intercessor or how dare you think that you can just walk up to God and pray to him? Who exactly do you think you are? That he would listen to you. And in contrast with that idol worship and the, the statues and the cold metal that religions of the East worship or the darkness that 
much of the Middle East is enveloped in or the, the intercessors that so many other forms of Christianity have. In contrast to all that, in the middle of this, you have this soft and this tender image of God the Father telling you, draw near to me and I will come to you. As if you can't get too close to him. God doesn't desire distance. He wants you close to him. He wants you at his heart. Or to use the language of, of John 1.18, he wants you on his chest. He wants you near him. And this was a dynamic tension in the Old Testament. It's a tension that ebbed and, and flowed when Israel left the promised land. Remember, God uh, brings them to the Red Sea and then brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. He's going to bring Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai to reveal the law. But Moses has to tell the people, you may not draw near to God, Moses has to say. Do not draw near. And God's voice comes down from the mountain and says, do not let them come near me. It's the same phrase with a knot in front of it. They can't approach me, God says. And he covers the mountain in darkness and there's the whirlwind and there's the, the tempest and there's the, the trumpet and the sound of the voice that made the listeners beg that no further words be spoken to them. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I, I'm undone with fear, God. And God speaks to Moses and then Moses comes down from the mountain and there's the idol worship and we just put the gold in and out came a cow. What are we supposed to do? And God rebukes them through Moses and takes them away and then punishes them and Moses breaks the law and recreates the law and you get through all of that and by Exodus 30, there's a new command. Draw near to God now. Now that his law has come and you know what he wants, now draw near. Now that his word is revealed, draw near. This is why when Moses repeats the law in Deuteronomy, at the end of the wilderness to the new generation, he stands up on the plain, Deuteronomy 4, and he announces to the, the nation, he begins his, his recitation of the law with this basic question. What nation in the world is there that has a God that wants to draw near to us? Have you heard of such a thing? There's never been such a thing, Moses says. As a nation with a God so near This causes a problem, though. A problem that you should probably be aware of. James is aware of it before the verse ends. <laughs> if God is holy and exalted, and we are sinners, then how does God minimize his holiness or obscure his holiness for the sake of coming to us? This is the problem. And this problem leads to our second component of this joining the Lord's army. Second, your mission impossible. You have to cleanse your hands. You have to purify your heart. The impossible phase of your mission is how can you approach this holy God? And you see this parallelism here in verse 8. Cleanse your hands. Right after he says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Right away, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And you might think this is progression from the easier to the harder. <laughs> I mean, you can wash your hands. I'm skeptical sometimes when I look at my five-year-olds, but you can wash your hands. But washing your hands here is parallel to purifying your heart. And you, you get this in the Old Testament too. Back in Exodus chapter 30, when God declares for the Israelites to draw near to him, step one, wash your hands. Step two, wash your garments. 
And this is, it's not that God is afraid of germs. <laughs> You're going to come to the temple, you need to scrub up. No, it's that the physical process of washing your hands and washing your clothes is demonstrating to you, it's teaching you, it's instructive, it's didactic that you're learning that there's something wrong with your heart. There's something wrong, it's dirty, it's defiled. And so you can't approach God without some kind of ritual cleaning. Now obviously the washing of the hands and the going to the mikvahs and the, where you would wash your bodies and the washing of the, the priest's robes was not sufficient to change the heart. They didn't actually change anybody's heart. But it was meant to teach. And if anything, it was meant to teach the impossibility of the whole thing. Some of those Jewish sects would, would baptize or go to the mikveh repeatedly throughout the day. Some of the translators would write a line or even a word, some of them in Hebrew, and then go back to the mikveh and wash themselves and go, go back to their writing. I mean, this was their, their ritual. And if you go to Israel today, you see so much of it is still... Uh, in the grip of that, where you use this sink for this food and this sink for Jews and this sink for, for Gentiles and this sink for this other kind of food and everything is about the washings and the regulations. And there's a certain appeal to that because as transcendent and as distant as, as God is, there's a certain idea that if you learn enough rules and regulations and you wash in a certain way, you can maybe approach God through your washings, approach God through your ritual cleansing. I mean, that's at least doable. But James, as he gives you the washing of your hands, it's parallel here to cleansing your heart. And you see that in the Old Testament too. Wash your hands, wash your robes, circumcise your hearts. But you can't do that. You can wash your hands, but you can't do open heart surgery on yourself. You catch a cold from the outside in, but you catch sin from the inside out. So washing your hands may guard you against the flu, but it does not help guarding your life against sin, which comes from the inside out. And so purifying your heart is a necessity to approach God, but it's also an impossibility. You can't do it. Jeremiah verse four, chapter four, verse four. Jeremiah, Yahweh through Jeremiah commands the Israelites, circumcise your hearts. Take away the dead skin off of your heart so that you can worship me in spirit and in truth. And that's gonna lead to the new covenant that you can't change your own heart. And so God has to do it for you. But this is the impossible task. How does one change his heart? You can't do it. You can't do it. And so you have to turn to the Lord, which leads to our third description of the Lord's army here. Basic training. You have to trade your pride for humility. Trade your pride for humility. This performance of weeping and wailing that James describes here in verse 9. Look at it. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. It's a staccato style here. It's really in a list of imperatives. Resist the devil back up earlier. Back in verse 7, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, draw near to God in verse 8, cleanse your hands in verse 8, purify your hearts in verse 8, be wretched in verse 9, mourn in verse 9, weep in verse 9. Now a passive one here, let your laughter be turned, let your joy be turned. And now an active one again, humble yourselves. So it's this machine gun style, do these things, do these things. And at the, the center of the bullseye here, the target of what these imperatives are after is to pierce your heart. For you to get rid of your pride and replace it with humility. Because it's the inward work of heart transformation that produces the external 
relationship with, with the spiritual change, the drawing near to God. And I describe that as external because it's, it's spherical. You're moving and God is moving. You're drawing and God is drawing. Now what, what's the magnetic force here? What's bringing you to each other? It's the internal work of heart change. And it's described here in very negative terms. You know, somebody could say, this is, sounds like so negative. It's not my fault. <laughs> Be wretched. Mourn. Weep. This word wretched, it's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It is a common Old Testament word. In the Old Testament, it's a, an emotion you have when you're exposed as a hypocrite. And you're undone. Hosea chapter 10 is where you, one of the places you find it. The Israelites were you know, adulterous people and committing idolatry and God commands them to repent. They won't. So God tells Hosea, marry this, this harlot. He does. She then sells herself into illicit slavery and God tells Hosea, go buy her back out. And the Israelites are, of course, deriding Hosea and, and mocking him and for it just, it's, it's humiliating and Hosea is humiliated and the whole thing is appalling. And then by chapter 10, the Israelites are exposed that they are the ones who are appalling. They are the ones who are spiritual idolaters, spiritual, spiritual adulterers. That's them. And the response to realizing that they were making fun of Hosea, but it's actually about them, should be, it's this word. They should be, feel wretched. They should feel undone. They should feel exposed, humiliated. It's a powerful word. It, it, one lexicon describes it as the emotion you have when something so traumatic or so bad or so negative happens to you that you decide you're going to give up on living. You give up. You give up, I don't want to, I don't, I give up on life. And then you go to bed and you wake up in the next morning and guess what? Life is still going on. The world didn't end with your, with your giving up last night. So you got to get out of bed and you've got to go do something. This is that word. I mean, what does that, what does that person feel like at that time? Not well. <laughs> they feel, the English word, it's a good translation, wretched, awful, horrible. And that's the command. Sometimes in the Old Testament, that word is just translated destroyer. It's made into a noun. It's so, it's Psalm 16 is one of those places. I think Psalm, or Isaiah 33 would be the other, where it's just so powerful that God just describes that emotion as being destroyed. It undoes you. And the second imperative here, not just be wretched, the second one, mourn. That's the emotion that God commands his people to have if they want to draw near to him. That, you, that you're broken, that you're sorrowful. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says that godly sorrow produces repentance. And that's, and that's your window here into why James is commanding you to have it. If you want to draw near to God, you have to be wretched and you have to mourn over your sin. Not mourn that you got caught, not mourn that you didn't get away with it. Picture athletes weeping after they lose the championship game. And it's worth asking, are they weeping because they're sad they lost or are they weeping because they're sad they didn't put the effort in necessary to win? Big difference. When it comes to your sin, which are you weeping? Are you weeping that you got caught? Are you weeping about your own nature, corrupt, ashamed of what's there? And that's why Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, that godly repentance, godly sorrow they're connected. When you weep over your identity as a sinner, that can produce repentance. This is what David means when he writes, 
that sacrifice is not what God wants. He wants a broken spirit. That's this concept. A contrite heart. A mourning heart. The third word here. Weep, he says. Weep. Draw, cleanse, purify, be wretched, mourn, weep. This is your exposed for your sin and you can't keep the tears in. This is Peter who loves Jesus, loves Jesus, would do anything for Jesus, but then denies him once, twice, thrice. Here's the rooster crow, puts the pieces together and what can he do? He weeps. He falls down and he weeps. And so this becomes James's command to you. Do you want to draw near to God? This is what it looks like. Be wretched, mourn, weep. And there's an exchange here. As you weep and you mourn your own sin, he says this, trade in, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. This word for laughter, it's a, not the kind of jovial laughter we might associate it with in English, but it's this, the laughter of derision, the laughter of somebody who gets away with something, the villainous laughter. You know, someone, you're on Edsel, you're on 395 in Edsel, and you see the person go on the shoulder, pass all the traffic to get off on Edsel there. You know that move? And you look at that person, and you're bitter at that person, and what makes you angry at that person is you can almost hear them laughing while they're doing it. It's this Psalm 70, I think Psalm 73 kind of laughter. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they get away with things? They get away with so much, the wicked do, and they laugh while they're doing it. And they think, the arm of the law can't catch me. No one knows. They get away with it. James says, trade that arrogant scoffing, ridiculous laughter in, and what do you get in exchange, he says? Mourning over your sin. Trade in your joy. What do you get? The joy of the worldly joy, the worldly joy that sings in sinful revelry. Trade that in. It's not Christian to sing in sinful revelry. It's Christian to, what does he say? Have gloom. Over your condition. Over your condition as a sinner. If I were to have given you a pop quiz before we read this passage this morning, in Christianity, do you trade your sorrow for, for joy or do you trade your joy for sorrow? Which way does it go? Many of you would have got it wrong, I'm sure. There's even that song, I'm trading my sorrows, right? I'm trading my sorrows, I'm trading my joy, I'm laying them all down. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, 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 Lord. Here, you're trading your joy. It's that, that I have conquered the world. You're getting rid of that. And you're downcast. Why are you downcast? Because of your sin. That whole emotional exchange can be summarized in this one word, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humility. Christians don't celebrate their sin. They weep. The thing that gives the world joy breaks the Christian's heart. Humility here means to make yourself low. Listen carefully. There are no giants in the kingdom of God. There's no proud and lofty and arrogant in the kingdom of God. There is no one good in the kingdom of God but one, and that is God alone. 
And that's why to draw near to God, there's a narrow gate to draw near to God, a very narrow gate. And you can't get through it standing upright. You have to humble yourself. You have to bow. There's no arrogant way to ask somebody for directions because you're lost. There's no arrogant way to ask your neighbor to help you do something that he's totally able to do and you're not. There's no proud way to draw near to God. And this is the great reversal of Yahweh. You come to him with humility and he exalts you. If you come to him exalted, he will break you down. But if you come to him humbled, he will raise you up. This week I've been reading in my devotionals Luke 1. I've been reading Mary's song over and over and over again. What a powerful description of what God does to the brokenhearted, how he can heal them, how he saves them. It's the great reversal. I think Mary has in her mind Hannah's song where Hannah says, the barren God gives all these children to and those that are fruitful, God humbles and they, they come to nothing. Hannah says, God takes the warrior's bow and breaks it. Mary echoes that. Mary says in Luke chapter one, verse 51, that God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The mighty are on the thrones of their life. They're on the thrones of their own hearts and God brings them down. He finds those in a humble estate and he exalts them. He fills the hungry with good things. Notice that word phrase. God fills the hungry. And the rich he sends away, and the word in English is empty, he sends them away hungry. The empty stomach, God fills with good things. The person who is filled with the good things in life, God sends them away famished. That's typical Yahweh. So that he gets the glory. God takes Gideon's cowardice and makes him a brave general. God takes brave Gideon, General Gideon, and gives him a cowardly army. If you're on Gideon, I mean, if you're Gideon, you don't know which way God wants you to face. <laughs> the point, God can take a, a coward and make him brave. The other point, God's not going to be served by a brave person. Get humble. He takes baby Samson. Before Samson is born or strong, and prophesies, I'm going to make this nothing, this nobody baby. I'm going to make him the strongest person in Israel. And then doesn't use Samson to deliver Israel until he breaks his strength, gouges out his eyes, chains him up, and then uses him to deliver Israel. He takes the boy shepherd in David, takes him as a boy shepherd, too tiny to be noteworthy at all, and uses him to defeat Goliath, but then takes the proud, bold, military leader David and breaks him down and says, you're... I'm not going to be glorified through you like this. Makes him humble. Makes him broken. Turns his lazy lust into woeful worship. This is typical Yahweh. And it's what's commanded here. How do you draw near to God? You humble yourself. So when I asked you earlier, have you been found? Here's the reverse engineer this. Have you wept over your own sin? Have you been broken over your own sin? Have you been mournful about your sinful condition? Or, or do you say, no, I, I haven't. Frankly, I'm not that bad. And maybe you wouldn't express it with words. You wouldn't articulate that last phrase. Frankly, I'm not that bad. But you would imply it by saying, I don't need to be broken over my sin. Thank you very much. David can't fight in Saul's armor. You can't draw near to God in the armor of your own righteousness. It doesn't fit you. God sees through it. Nobody comes through the narrow gate chuckling and laughing and skipping. 
Those that draw near to God do so with sobriety and an overarching awareness of their own sin. And that awareness produces humility, it produces contrition, which humility and contrition are not virtues in and of themselves. They're only virtuous in as much as they draw you to God. This isn't new, this has echoes in it that sound familiar. It's because it's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses three through six. Jesus opened his mouth in verse 2 of Matthew 5 and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It goes on to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This passage obviously has an order to it. There's a progression. You have to be broken over your sin. You're then sorrowful about your sin. You're then humble because of your sin. And God takes that and makes you holy. You don't go backwards. You don't talk about how holy you are and as if that would make you humble or sorrowful or broken. You would never get that far down the chain. This is not fortune cookie order here where you know it doesn't matter which order you take these in. There's a progression. You have to weep and be broken over your sin in order to be satisfied, to be filled, to be comforted. There's no other way to draw near to God. Do you believe me when I say that? There's no back door into God's kingdom. There's no sneak attack through an an exposed flank that God didn't fence off his holiness well enough. There's no way to sneak up on God or to get into his kingdom except through the narrow gate. He didn't leave any other opening for some alien to get in. The only way to approach God is through the narrow gate of contrition and humility, which is the narrow gate of Christ. That's why when you look at Christ, he has this kind of humbling power to him. He has the holiness of heaven, perfect meekness. No boasting, although angels would listen to him. Strength under control. Never sinned. And so he's not mourning his own sin, but he's mourning ours. Aware of the separation that would come between him and his father as he takes on our sin, weeping in the garden, sweating his drops of blood, going to the cross to make intercession for our sin. That's why he's the lever that God is searching. He asks, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And he's in pursuit of mankind ever since, and he finds them through Jesus Christ. That Jesus bears in the cross, the penalty for our sin, rises from the grave to now offer new life to those. And so now we go into the world telling people that if you come to Christ, he's calling for you. He's saying, draw near. And that if you come to him, you experience the power of his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, and the new life. How do you come near? You confess your sins. You you confess your sins. You're broken over your sins. You acknowledge your sins. And you're sorrowful that your sins have separated you from God. Listen, God didn't separate himself from you. You did when you sinned. Your sin removes you from him. But he doesn't let you go your own way. Instead, he tells you, draw near to me. Come to me. If you come to me, I'll come to you. You can't get all the way to him. If you come to me, God says, I'll come to you. And how does God know you're coming to him? Are you broken over your sin? 
Blessed are those who mourn. Lord, you've given us this invitation to come to you. I pray for the hearts of those who are here this morning. I pray that they would experience the tenderness of a relationship with you, the closeness of knowing that your ear is inclined to hear our prayers, your proximity to us through your word in our laps, through your word in our hearts and in our minds. We know that there is joy in Christ because there's love in Christ and there's charity in Christ and there's freedom in Christ. We know all those fruits, all those virtues come through the, the narrow gate. So I pray for anyone here this morning that has never accounted themselves as lost, that has never celebrated being found. I pray this morning that they would have a reckoning in their hearts. They'd be aware of their own sin, the potency therein, and that you would use that to draw them to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.